My name's Jennifer Dunn, and I'm a PhD candidate at Montana State University. And I'm looking at Libby and using sort of the environmental history, the history of science, looking at it as a social history. And that's going to be my talk today. I would say that I'm very honored to be here at the conference, and even more, a little honored to follow David McCumber, who, as I told my husband when I found out I'd be presenting with David, I said, oh, that's a little intimidating. I'm right, I'm presenting with the person who wrote the book on the asbestos. And he's like, oh, well, you know what you're doing. And I'm like, no, literally, the book on Libby, the, the book. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to. It's beautifully written and so heartfelt and brings tears to your eyes. It's just an excellent book. Some of, as I was watching his presentation, I'm like, oh, we use some of the same sources for our slides. And actually, I laughed when I came in because we used the same exact look to our slide. So I was like, great minds, think alike here. Located in the remote northwestern corner of Montana, the town of Libby sits in natural splendor, uh, in the natural splendor of the Kootenai National Forest and the Rocky Mountains. How many of you have been to Libby before? A pretty good percentage. I always forget from Bozeman how far Libby is. I think when I'm, when I'm in Bozeman, I'm like, ah, western Montana, we're all neighbors. And then I drive there and I'm like, I could have driven to Sydney for as long as it took me to get to Libby. So way, way, way up there if you haven't been up there. Ma uh, mountain ranges border the community of 2,600 residents to the north and south, and the Kootenai River flows past Libby's downtown district. It's a beautiful little community there. For most of the 20th century, Libby enjoyed a strong economy sustained by extractive resource industries, and residents enjoyed living in a beautiful place with good paying jobs. In the last decades of the century, the seemingly idyllic small Montana town faced a number of challenges. The logging and mining industries suffered downturns starting in the 1980s, and the population dropped more than 20% over the following decades as people moved away in search of employment. Then, in 1999, news broke nationally about toxic asbestos found in the homes, yards, and bodies of Libby's residents. Asbestos fibers, released through decades of local vermiculite mining and processing, had infiltrated the lungs of Libby's residents since the mid-20th century, causing thousands to sicken and hundreds to die. In order to address the dire environmental and public health issues, the Environmental Protection Agency designated Libby as a Superfund site, which provided federal funds for environmental remediation and medical assistance. This federal government program, created in 1980, manages to clean up of the nation's most hazardous and polluted waste sites. For two decades, the story of Libby's poisoning and resultant cleanup has represented a larger story of corporate malfeasance and government intervention. But Libby also illustrates another process occurring in the American West, where communities have erased aspects of their past to benefit economically from tourism. Libby is not a unique example of a community ignoring unpleasant historic events that occurred there. Western communities generally leave the violence of their past out of any promotional literature particularly the violence perpetuated by their ancestors against Native Americans. A different sort of violence, however, occurred in Libby, and its lethal, lethal consequences still affect residents today. Mining, an industry that employed many and supported the local economy, poisoned Libby residents and their environment for most of the 20th century. For decades, their sicknesses remained unknown to others in the state and the nation, as well as many in their hometown. Other communities in the American West have also dealt with the environmental and health consequences caused by local industries. 
For many of these places, their extractive resource economies slowed or shut down in the latter decades of the last century, and they turned to tourism, sometimes reluctantly, as a way to bring money and jobs into the community. Liberty represents a common tension found in these communities, how to clean up their environment while resisting the stigma of being a toxic landscape. When Libby's poisoned environment became a public story, residents and governmental officials deliberated about how to address their environmental health concerns. This talk examines how Libby experienced economic and environmental crises and how the community looks to reinvent itself after the asbestos cleanup. Not all Libby residents responded uniformly to these difficulties, especially early on in the process. Analyzing local newspaper accounts reveals that initially residents held contradictory views on federal cleanup. Some, particularly local business interests, concerned about the ramifications of a toxic le legacy, resisted federal intervention. Others petitioned the EPA for Superfund designation to clean up their environment. Letters to the editor and articles in the newspapers revealed that most community misgivings about federal involvement in Libby disappeared as the scope of the asbestos poisoning became apparent and the town came to terms with the government-funded cleanup. As the EPA finishes its work in Lincoln County and the town moves off the Superfund list in 2020, residents look towards Libby's future. Some Superfund sites will always be physically marked by their industrial past. Large open pit mines, for example, remain as permanent tributes to mining and its environmental consequences. The asbestos in Libby, however, did not leave a visible reminder on the landscape. While asbestos still permeates the homes, the environment, and the bodies of many residents, the town shows few environmental scars from a century of mining. This situation suggests that Libby can choose how to remember or ignore its toxic past as the town positions itself for the 21st century and promotes itself as a clean and healthy destination. We have the vermiculite mine here, processing plants in town, and then that's what vermiculite looks up there in the top left corner. Libby's early mining experiences mirrored the rest of Montana. As the initial gold rush boom slowed, other ore deposits emerged through mining. In 1919, Ian Alley, a part-time miner and owner of the Libby Hotel, bought mining claims on nearby Rainy Creek, six miles from Libby. Alley found a unique non-metallic mineral called vermiculite there and showed it expanded into a lightweight, non-flammable material when heated. Named zonalite, mining began in earnest and in the 1920s, raw ore was shipped across the nation or processed at the local mill. Vermiculite's popularity comes from its processed form. When heated, it expands or pops in volume and fills with air pockets, and that's what you're seeing up in the top. After this processing, vermiculite does not burn or corrode. These properties make it very popular for loose insulation and also in gardening materials as a water soil conditioner. Vermiculite itself is not harmful to human health, but the Libby vermiculite contains a highly toxic form of asbestos fibers that once airborne infiltrate the lungs. These asbestos fibers, shaped like needles, accumulate in the human body, most often in the lung tissues, which can lead to hardening of the lungs. That's what you see here, is the asbestos fibers, and then in the other scan of human lungs, you can see where they form cloudy areas there in the lungs. The exposure to asbestos can cause a disease called asbestosis, or can lead to lung cancer and mesothelioma. Regardless of the diagnosis, all three diseases share some common symptoms. Shortness of breath, persistent cough, and chest pain, and the symptoms can take up to 40 years to develop after initial exposure. 
One graphic description of the impact of asbestos on the lungs describes how, quote, the tissue changes from the elasticity and thickness of a balloon to that of a thick orange peel, end quote, making it impossible to take a deep breath. In 1963, W.R. Grace acquired the mine and continued to mine, mill, and distribute Libby vermiculite for almost 30 years. For much of that time, the mine produced a majority of the world's vermiculite while blanketing the town in asbestos. Until the mine ceased operations in 1900, 1990, W.R. Grace mined and processed nearly 200,000 tons of vermiculite each year. The miners were the first exposed to the asbestos as they dug vermiculite from the ground. Mills in town for the crushed ore, releasing asbestos-laden dust throughout the community. In addition, local residents used leftover vermiculite in their gardens, yards, and public spaces, such as schoolyards, the little league fields, and the high school track. And this picture here shows the local baseball field, obviously, and one of the processing plants right next to it, where they'd be shipping out um, vermiculite across the nation. The ubiquitous vermiculite and vermiculite dust in Libby meant that the citizens breathed in asbestos throughout their day. For the miners, the cancer that developed in their lungs may have been an unwelcome but accepted result for high-paying jobs. They came home, however, and hugged their wives and children, who then began to sicken and in many cases die. Horrified by illnesses and death, some in Libby worked to hold Grace responsible. By the time the mine closed in 1990, over 140 lawsuits have been brought against Grace by local residents. But still, people outside of town generally did not appreciate the full impact of asbestos on Libby residents. Some Montana newspapers briefly documented the Libby lawsuits, but the sporadic articles did not add up to a damning indictment. For decades, Libby's toxic environment remained unknown to those living outside of Lincoln County. Eventually, however, the tally of victims grew too large to be dismissed and federal action was taken. In the 1950s, the first known case of asbestosis was diagnosed in Libby. Over the next few decades, others in Libby began to sicken and die. The story of Grace's malfeasance finally became a national story when, in mid-September 1999, a Seattle Post-Intelligent reporter, Andrew Snyder, published a series on W.R. Grace and Libby's asbestos titled Uncivil Action, A Town Left to Die. You can tell who has access to the initial Seattle Post Intelligence reports and who has to get it through interlibrary loan. So, <laughs> sorry for my version, but I'm glad you got to see David's. The series contained articles extremely critical of W.R. Grace, the state of Montana, and the federal government, all of whom Schneider accused as complicit in the asbestos poisoning of Libby residents. The first local printed response to Schneider's expose came out November 24, 1999, in the Montanian which was a, a, a twice-weekly newspaper in Libby. The front-page article titled, EPA to Help State Evaluate Asbestos in Libby, recounted how federal administrators responded to the possible health threat in Libby. The Montanian article challenged the anecdotal and highly speculative interviews, their description, cited in the Seattle newspaper. According to the Libby newspaper, quote, there is no scientific evidence to support the health concerns and that no local, state, or federal health agency can produce records or suggest that any health hazard remains." End quote. Over the next six months, the Montanian repeatedly challenged the largest newspaper's assertions. For example, the Seattle <coughs> paper reported 192 deaths and 375 illnesses related to asbestos, while the Montanian reported that the state medical doctor found less than 100 deaths statewide over the previous 10 years. In addition, the Montanian took the Seattle paper to task for elevating anxiety levels 
over toxic poisoning when the initial asbestos home samplings found only two properties with concerning asbestos levels. Many Libby residents feared more about how their community was characterized locally and nationally than about the potential health risk from asbestos. Frustration mounted that Libby was misrepresented as a valley of death and that a number of local citizens expressed anger at the media for its perceived unfair portrayal of the community. In January 2000, Tony Burgett, the Libby mayor, wrote to the Montanian, defending himself against criticisms that his concerns for Libby only focused on the economic health rather than the public health of the town. Burgett stated that the medical coverage on the news had damaged the local economy when, in fact, the preliminary findings from the EPA reassured him that the asbestos was not a problem in Libby. Montana Senator Conrad Burns followed the next week with an editorial criticizing the exaggerated asbestos claims, which had, quote, impacts on tourism, real estate, and the economy of Libby, end quote. Accusations against the media and its coverage of asbestos issues came to a head when a Montanian editorial defended its freedom of speech and denounced the local community advisory committee. The committee had expressed reservations about media coverage and had considered excluding the media from informational meetings between the EPA and the community, thereby controlling the public information on Libby's asbestos problem. The Montanian noted that the lone consistent voice advocating freedom of speech came from the EPA on-site coordinator, Paul Pernard, who reiterated several times, this is America, when faced with arguments against media coverage. The Montanian's final word on the issue were clear, quote, and stop blaming the media. The media didn't invent the asbestos problem, but they did make it possible for everyone to know about it, end quote. As the scope of the asbestos hazard in Libby grew, more and more residents advocated for federal cleanup. In July 2000, the EPA suggested all residents who lived in Libby before 1991 had probably been exposed to asbestos and should receive medical screenings to assess their risk of asbestos-related diseases. After documenting the results from asbestos sampling and residents' health screenings, the EPA declared that a public health emergency existed in Libby. This gave Libby the dubious distinction of being the first and only place to receive this label due to the fact that Libby was, quote, the worst case of industrial poisoning of a whole community in American history, end quote. By early 2001, the EPA declared that it would be easier to list who was unaffected by asbestos in Libby than to count all those who were affected. Of those residents who had been screened for health issues, 30% showed a potential for lung disease. According to Perinard, this percentage was much worse than anyone thought. The expectation had been that 10 to 15% of those tested would have lung abnormalities. While the percentage of minors screened with lung scarring was not very surprising at 50%, the EPA expressed shock that 25% of residents with no ties to the mine had lung health issues. In response to those findings, the EPA recommended Superfund status as the best way to clean up Libby's asbestos contamination. Governor Judy Martz, who had lived in Butte and remained critical of the slow cleanup process there, would not commit to asking for a Superfund designation. March also expressed concerns about the state's share of the Superfund costs, estimated to be between five and $10 million. Some residents worried about the impact of Superfund designation on the economy of Libby. In response, EPA officials acknowledged that negative publicity and economic consequences did often accompany Superfund designation, but reminded residents that the public already knew of Libby's toxic environment and that Superfund cleanup could only improve the situation. EPA official 
Perinard admitted that he prioritized the health of Libby's residents over the town's economic interests. When challenged in a public meeting about this decision, Perinard responded, quote, if I think I need to do a cleanup because there's a risk to people, that outweighs all other considerations. If that means I get eaten up by the local folks for affecting Libby's economy, then I'll take my beating. End quote. Other residents accused W.R. Grace of inciting an anti-superfund attitude by arguing that federal program would cause economic harm to Libby. One sarcastic response from a letter in the Montanian revealed how some in town viewed Grace's opinion. Well, W.R. Grace, our community is already hurting, but thanks a lot for the free advice. The letter writer pleaded with fellow citizens to support Superfund designation, saying, quote, governments on all levels fail to protect us. One government has acknowledged that failure, and that is, that is our federal government. Uncle Sam is reaching out a hand to a drowning community, and we need to take hold. By August 2001, most people in Libby supported the Superfund designation, and almost 300 residents, local officials, and members of the press met with Governor Marks and asked her to fast-track the process so cleanup could be started as soon as possible. At this meeting, Marks remained uncommitted, but in late December, she surprised residents by formally requesting the Superfund designation. Marks' announcement brought tears and a standing ovation from grateful residents, and cleanup began in earnest in Libya in 2002. Superfund sites are places so toxic and contaminated that the EPA recommends and often funds their cleanup. The EPA created the Superfund program in 1980 to focus on the nation's most contaminated waste sites, with over 1,700 Superfund sites prioritized for cleanup. Libby's cleanup spanned more than 15 years, required the investigation of 7,500 properties, and it included a cleanup of 2,400 properties, and cost over $600 million, of which W.R. Grace paid for $250 million. During its 17-year cleanup in Libby, the EPA removed over 1 million cubic yards of toxic soil and 30,000 cubic yards of contaminated building materials. They created eight operational units, you can see that picture there, for the Superfund site in Libby. Even with this removal of vast amounts of hazardous waste, questions and concerns persist about lingering asbestos in the area. The EPA did not inspect almost 700 properties around Libby as the owners either refused to participate in the cleanup or could not be contacted. The asbestos levels at these properties, therefore, could not be determined by the EPA. Homes that were inspected rarely had the asbestos removed. In its cleanup efforts, the EPA decided to seal asbestos into the walls of the homes. While the EPA assured homeowners this remedial plan presented minimal risk to their health, Residents expressed concern about asbestos exposure from future home renovations and remodels. In addition, scientific studies assessing the possible exposure to asbestos from tree bark warned that the forests surrounding Libby are reservoirs for the fibers released during 70 years of vermiculite mining and processing. Finally, with the dormancy period of, of decades, many more future victims are expected to succumb to cancer. Asbestos still remains in the environment, homes, and bodies of residents, even as the EPA ends its cleanup there. While the EPA currently touts the cleanup success and seeks to remove Libby from the Superfund list, the community looks to craft a new identity, one that leaves behind a toxic landscape and health concerns. Communities in the 20th century American West have often seen tourism as their best option to revitalize stagnant or declining resource-dependent economies. As a panacea for economic ills, Tourist economies induced a number of irrevocable changes for the residents and towns. The negative consequences of tourism have been documented, but tourism is important for regional and local economies. In the West, 
As mining and logging declined, a tourist economy was often desired. Tourism created jobs for locals, and the scenic mountain areas had great tourist potential. Libby has not been immune to the lure of these dollars. Similar to other communities that have lost their resource-dependent economic base, Libya residents marketed the town as a place to visit and vacation after the local industries shuttered and the economy slowed. Events such as Logger Days present Libby's past as one of a timber town. The mine and miners who worked there providing the majority of the world's supply of vermiculite for over 70 years received no acknowledgement in Libby's public persona. No events represent mining work, no statues or monuments remember the glory days of the W.R. Grace Mine. The Libby Chamber of Commerce website is one of the few local websites that mentions asbestos mining and the subsequent Superfund remediation process there. Quote, after 15 years of intensive cleanup, Libby continues full speed ahead without the lulls of past transitions. Just a few too many souls know how good a place this is for it to be abandoned now. Presumably, those lulls are downturns inherent in exactive resource communities or the challenge to local economies when a town becomes contaminated by hazardous materials. The Chamber website addresses the issues of asbestos contamination super fun. Quote, in Libby, we tend to be pretty frank people, so we're not going to sugarcoat this. Libby has had a widely publicized issue with asbestos. End quote. After this admission, the Chamber quickly moves to alleviate concern and assert that Libby is asbestos-free. Quote, in all truth, we've moved past it, and day to day, it has no impact on life here. End quote. The community is ready to move past its Superfund past into the 21st century and shed its toxic history. As the website concludes optimistically, quote, the economy is already transitioning with budding infrastructure and a drastic influx in technology. New businesses are growing, and Libby's economy is diversifying like never before. Libby's future is now. End quote. While Libby's Chamber website acknowledges Libby's toxic past, as the EPA leaves town, how long will Superfund remain in the community's social memory? Many other former Western communities cannot erase their resource-extractive past because of their landscape's environmental degradation. The Berkeley Pit, for example, will forever remain a memento to Butte's industrial past, which shaped its people and their environment. Other communities, where the environmental damage may be less visible, may have the ability to suppress their toxic past and move forward with a new outdoor-focused narrative. Dealing with the legacy of lead poisoning, the EPA has spent 35 years and $900 million in Kellogg, Idaho on cleanup, as the town rebrands itself as a four-season outdoor playground. Libby uses logging iconography and heritage festivals, as well as the lure of outdoor recreation to create a past that does not include vermiculite mining and asbestos poisoning. While more cases of lung disease and cancer will develop, Libby can ignore the town's mining legacy and Superfund past. The chamber touts outdoor amenities and recreation as Libby's selling points to tourists and new residents. But in order to make that claim, Libby's toxic mining past must be erased so that the economy and environment can be portrayed as clean, healthy, and bright. Many Western towns like Libby suffered a triple blow over the last 50 years. First, these communities lost their resource-extractive economies, oftentimes based in logging and or mining. Secondly, before leaving town, industry poisoned the local landscape and bodies. Finally, in Libby's case, the town was then nationally labeled as a toxic place through a Superfund designation that limited its ability to move on from its industrial pollutive past. Libby is not alone in dealing with economic decline and environmental contamination. Other communities are also trying to reinvent themselves in the 21st century. 
So where does this leave Libby as Superfund moves into its past? Logging and mining have been touted as ways to revive the local economy. Logging reached its peak output in Montana in the 1960s and 70s, with Libya as one of the main centers for commercial logging. In the last decades of the 20th century, local sawmills closed and logging jobs decreased. The last area mill closed its doors in 2002. Bringing back the timber industry in Libby would be challenging as currently the nearest mill sits 90 miles away in northern Idaho. The Hecla Mining Company wants to revive silver and copper mining in the area with the Montanor Mine, located 18 miles from Libby. Hecla asserts that operations would last up to 20 years and would employ 450 people at full production. Supporters of the mine argue that mining jobs would greatly improve the economic conditions in Lincoln County. Multiple environmental groups, however, countered that the mine could endanger protected species and surface water in the area and have brought lawsuits against the mine. Not all Libby residents want to forget the asbestos contamination and its victims. In early 2001, many in Libby struggled with the publicity that hundreds of their neighbors and friends had been poisoned. Some suggested a memorial to commemorate those who had died from asbestos-related diseases. A committee compiled a list of, of as many of the deceased as they could, both workers and family members. A plan developed to display wooden crosses with victims' names painted on them. By Memorial Day in 2001, 171 crosses were displayed and 80 people attended the commemorative service. During the memorial, State Representative Eileen Carney spoke and compared the asbestos victims to soldiers. While the military fallen had given their lives on the battlefield, Libby's victims were sacrificed by corporate America. In her speech, Carney discussed how many in Libby wished the asbestos problem would just go away. She, however, saw the memorial as a reminder of the lives lost and also uh, as proof of Libby's resiliency and community spirit. Quote, these crosses represent the people who have died, but they also serve to remind us that by pulling together we can tackle anything. We need to heal the town and bring it together. End quote. While the crosses did not become a permanent fixture in Libby, the Community Asbestos Memorial Project, called CAMP, the committee worked to have a memorial site that told the story of Libby and presented hope for the future. The committee, CAMP committee, chose the formal processing plant uh, in the slide I showed you with the baseball diamond in front, which had extremely high levels of asbestos during cleanup. The Fred Brown Pavilion became the center of a riverfront park and was dedicated to the longtime Libby mayor in 2008. A metal sign hanging at the entrance to the pavilion commemorates the Community Asbestos Memorial Project. The rows of stark white crosses no longer exist to remind the residents of individual victims of asbestos poisoning. The pavilion, however, stands commemorating Libby's past, but perhaps more importantly, also celebrates Libby's survival of economic hardship and environmental tragedy as it moves into a hopeful future. Thank you.